Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Sumseng, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. So, Will, this lengthy July 4th weekend, you went to see the latest Purge movie. Did you actually go to see it in theaters, or did you like? were you allowed to stream it online as has been the case for the past year and a half. Hollywood's back, man. I'm not streaming The Purge. Are you kidding me? I need the big screen experience. How many people were in the theater? Was this like a Friday night experience? Because I have not done this yet. So I saw like a, a Saturday matinee, but the for me, The Purge, like I come from a big kind of crew of Purge heads. We traditionally have an event. We call, whenever a Purge comes out, we have an event called Binge and Purge where we go to Fogo de Chao and eat as much food as we can, and then we go see The Purge. Wait, so this has been a tradition dating back since, was it 2013, when the first oh, Yeah, we got into The Purge maybe in like 2015. We, we were a little late to the game, but we're catching up with uh, various folkways and traditions. I mean, you know, people talk, every time Fast and the Furious comes out, people are like, oh man, like, you know, I really kind of like a dumb movie. I'm a bit, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy who knows how to have fun, whatever. Well, forget that, man. Fast and the Furious is over. Purge <laughs> is the future of American franchises. Isn't this the last one in the franchise, though? Well, that's it, what they say, the but I feel that The Purge, you know, will always have relevance to American culture. But anyways, yeah, so I saw the new Purge. This one is set on the border. It's the forever Purge. The political metaphors are extremely subtle. You know, you end up with <laughs> Americans fleeing to Mexico, and they're called the Dreamers. But yeah, I thought it was a fabulous new Purge. This Purge, the kind of the metaphor is, it's sort of like the Republican Party, essentially, which has fostered the Purge before. I mean, they're... Well, it's not called the Republican Party, right? No, you're right. It's called the New Founding Fathers, yes. So sort of the the conservatives, the Purge has gotten away from them, and sort of the your sort of your harder core elements than even the conservatives, your sort of QAnon types, your neo-Nazis, they've sort of taken over and so even gotten beyond that. And are there purgers in this movie talking about like pedophiles running the government? There aren't, there aren't. But there's definitely an element of, I thought there was a lot of January 6th resonance. I mean, at the risk of taking the purge too seriously, I thought this one was very intense and, uh, you know, really had some some lessons to be learned for us all. The first one, it seems like ages ago that this thing actually started. And it started with a movie starring Ethan Hawke. 2013. Yeah. He, he's the one who actually kicked off the franchise as this, uh, in the starring role. When it was coming out, I actually interviewed Jason Bloom, the guy who's behind Blumhouse that puts out all of the Purge movies. And he was talking about like the political content of the movie, which is kind of there in the background. And he said that the point of this one was, yes, there are political, racial, and economic elements to it and how the purge is disproportionately affecting like these underserved and vulnerable communities. But the point was to zero in on a family, like one random suburban family to sort of play up the horror aspect of it and show how this massive totalitarian government, how the ripple effects go down to just like a single family. Like, that was the idea. And then every Purge movie that came after that kind of did away with that conceit. And it was like, fuck it. It's just politics front and center, all of it, especially when you have movies titled, like, The Purge Election Year. Well, The Purge had too much to tell us about American life to be confined to one home invasion movie, you know? Right. I mean, The Purge had a lot to say. <laughs> oh, God, when Trump came along, they started playing up like, oh, this is making America great again. In all of their, like, TV spots, they were like, yes, we finally have our hook to make it seems super relevant. Yeah, 
it's great overall. I mean, and you know, you mentioned the experience being back in the theater when it started playing. I mean, this was my first movie since the pandemic and it started playing and I was like, geez, that's loud. They got to turn this down. Like, you know, someone's going <laughs> to someone's gonna rush in here and say like, sorry, folks. But no, that's just how movies are. And, and you know, obviously I've gotten older since I last saw a movie in a theater, but that's my recommendation. New Purge, check it out. This is the rare movie that we talk about on the podcast that you should actually see. So just to be clear for our audience, the movie that comes directly before it in the timeline is Purge Election Year, when this charismatic, bespectacled female candidate runs against the pro-Purge party and wins. Yeah, and she she abolishes the Purge. Right, and she gets rivet. They just say, well, the Purge is back. <laughs> right, this takes place after two terms where she loses an election, or her would-be successor does, and suddenly the pro-purge party is back in power. Do I have the premise correct? That's correct, that's correct. It's a pretty intricate campaign. Every four years, they're running on, do Americans, or enough Americans, to get enough electoral votes to swing it to the totalitarian purge party, want to start killing their neighbors en masse. Like, that is the core issue of each presidential election every four years. That would years. be a very awkward one, you know, it's like someone, someone supports the <laughs> purge party which is all premised around killing the people around you it's like oh yikes how, how do you how do you continue that thanksgiving dinner with friends let's and just family? say i really want to be able to get nuts in our neighborhood and also i know it's a movie it's a horror action franchise whatever but something i never got about the franchise as it started to get deeper and deeper into the sequels was okay this is a totalitarian fascistic party that wants to use the purge to try to eliminate the homeless and racial minorities that they don't like. Like, that is the actual reason that they're doing this, hidden under the guise of this pseudo-scientific propaganda or whatever. If they're that evil and that dedicated to mass murder and purging, like, the races that they don't like, why do they have elections every four years? Well, Swin, this is addressed in The Purge. They, I mean, it's an illiberal democracy. I mean, literally, the plot of one of The Purges is Frank Grillo has to protect the anti-purge candidate because the purge party just wants to murder her. Right, but why do they allow the election to happen? Because they need the illusion of legitimacy. Just like anyone, why do they do it in any illiberal democracy, you know? I mean, this, anyways, I'm, I'm getting heated here about The Purge. <laughs> All right, let's, let's move on. <laughs> okay, but before we start before we start getting too hot about this stupid fucking film franchise. Actually, I take that back. I really do enjoy I enjoy the Purge movies. I really do. I really do. Obviously, over the past few months, there have been a number of pro-Trump social media sites that have been bubbling up, particularly in the wake of him being banned from social media sites like Twitter.com. The most recent one came out just a few days ago in a soft launch called Getter. I think that's the way you're supposed to pronounce it. It's spelled G-E-T-T-R. It's supposed to be a combination and shortening of getting together or get together. <laughs> so obviously this was something that was launched with Jason Miller, who is a longtime Trump advisor and confidant to the former president. And he's the company's CEO. But the more and more you look into the company, the more we found here at The Daily Beast that there is another prominent figure bankrolling this social media effort. Will, can you tell our audience a little bit about this shady character? So Jason Miller, Trump, close Trump confidant, launches Getter. And the idea was, I think when he, we knew he was leaving to start a social media company. And so we kind of thought this was going to be like the Trump social network, right? At least that was the implication. But when Getter started, Trump really is kind of ditching it. And you and I both talked to Jason Miller. We had a conference call with him. He got a, a private Fever Dreams episode experience with him in the hot seat. <laughs> I gotta say, this thing is busted, man. It works fine, but like this isn't going anywhere. I mean, this makes Parler look like, uh, like, I don't know, the like the Large Hadron Collider. Have you been surfing Getter recently? Yeah, I, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I'm a Getter power user. That's not a question. But like, so Getter is just like right off the bat, it's getting a lot of heat. And as you said, I mean, the reason it's getting so much heat, even from the right, which is the only people they need to convince, is because as we reported, there are these connections with this gentleman named Gao Wingi, who is a, I believe the the go to description is a fugitive Chinese billionaire. And this is awesome. a gentleman who who has <laughs> sort of fallen out with the Chinese Communist Party for reasons that are a little unclear. And he's living in the U.S. and he wants asylum. He doesn't want to get extradited to China on corruption charges, which may or may not be legitimate. And so as a result, he's been cozying up to a lot of right wing characters. And so I think you, you understand. I mean, he's tight with Steve Bannon, for example. Yes. And he has courted the likes of Rudy Giuliani. Like basically, if there is a prominent Trump 
Poirot figure, chances are good he has tried to cuddle up to them in one way or another over the past few years. Like Steve Bannon was was arrested on his yacht when Bannon was arrested on fraud charges related to build the wall scheme. So, I mean, this is a guy a lot of times if there's like a Trump world person who's like, hmm, this guy seems weirdly well funded. Well, Gowingi may be involved in it. And so so basically Getter is just the reskin of this Gowingi app. And Gow has like a lot of the thing about him is he has just these armies of internet supporters. Now, are they legitimate? Are they, you know, they've been described as trolls, whatever. When Getter launched last week, it already had 1,200 reviews. And so it's like, how could this happen? This has only been up for like a week. Well, as it turned out, it's because Gao's people were just like mobbing it and with their promotion. So there's this whole thing where Jason Miller is trying to sort of be like, oh, this Gao guy. Yeah, I suppose he has a mild interest in this app when he, in fact, seems to basically be run again. Right. And also, like when you and I were interviewing Jason, he did concede that at least one of the big investors to Getter was a quote-unquote family foundation run by Guao and his family. Which, by the way, I'm sorry, though, you cannot find any information about this family foundation online. Jason would not give us the name of the family foundation. So the idea that there's, oh, he's like, well, he's not really involved. It's his family foundation. I think it's pretty spurious. Aren't Guao and his people going out there and saying, ah, this is my new app? Well, it's so funny. I mean, this guy, like, this guy rocks in some ways, I have to say. Like, it's too bad. Like, I really wish I, I spoke Chinese because it seems like there is just so much crazy stuff going on with this guy. And he has this, like, he wears just crazy outfits. He records rap songs. Let me tell you what I've been through, baby. Live the life that was hella unfair. Seen things that been driving me crazy. In the country where the leaders don't And care. on his purse, he sort of has built his own YouTube. And it seems like in Chinese on his YouTube, he, he just like riffs on American politics in ways that I think are pretty unflattering to his associates in America. Like he had this whole thing where according to the translation, he's like, Mike Lindell, that man is the next president. Like Trump and Pompeo, they can do what they want. But Mike Lindell is the future of the White House. Oh, this guy gets it. Yeah, I mean, he really, he does in a weird way, right? So on his website, he has these people who are translating him who say that he's saying things like, Getter is like the culmination of all my hopes and dreams. Like, I came up with the logo for Getter. Like, I mean, it really seems like Getter is his thing. And then you have Jason Miller being like, hmm, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's distantly connected to it. There's a lot of code connections between him, Getter, and other Gao operations. So I think it's pretty clear that it's his thing. Right, and when we were talking to Jason, Miller, he was mentioning that he had spoken to Donald Trump about this app and about joining, but there is no commitment yet from the twice impeached former president to actually get a verified official account on Getter. So there's no way he's joining, right? I would be surprised at this. I would bet all of my Getter followers that <laughs> Trump will not join because here's why, right? I can see in my mind's eye when this launched last week, Trump at Mar-a-Lago, or as you said, excuse me, at Bedminster saying, I'm sorry, he called it Getter? And he's like, no, no, that's not for us. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, so oh wait, how many Getter followers do you have at this point? This is the deal. Getter operates in this weird parasitic way with Twitter where you can, quote, import your followers from Twitter, right? And so the thing is, you can't, obviously, you, you can't force your followers to create Getter accounts. So really, it just copies whatever your Twitter follower number is. And then it's like, okay, there you go. You have like, in my case, like 150,000. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But how many of those are actually animate individuals who are following you on Getter? Basically none. This is a weird thing that happens with these right-wing things where it's like so much of these knockoffs is people feeling that they're like shadow banned and they're not getting like the clout they crave on Twitter. And so like the Mike Lindell one, for example, right? Their whole big promise was like, if you are an influencer and you join, we will make everyone on the site follow you, <laughs> you know? And so it's just like the whole lure is just pumping up your numbers. But but getting back to Getter, I mean, the thing that I, I, I think is going to doom Getter right off the bat is not that it got hacked recently. You know, people love to hack these sites. And then people are like, oh, it's doomed. And it's like, oh, great. I found out they scraped everyone's profile pic. Who cares, right? But what's interesting about this is that people have turned on Getter on the right. And so number one, the connections to Gao, who is a controversial character, even within the right. He sued Roger Stone because Roger Stone is making all these allegations against him. So there's kind of these factions that are already aligned against him. Additionally, Getter is being really poorly moderated to the extent that the QAnon hashtag was overwhelmed with like anime porn and like Sonic the Hedgehog crush porn, which is, you know, when Sonic crushes you. And so QAnon people, they're like, I don't go. I go here to talk about the plan and the pedophile dungeons. I don't go here to see pictures of Sonic. So already they're pretty mad.
Okay, now we're joined on Fever Dreams by Kelly Weil, a reporter who covers so many of the, the right-wing kooks and conspiracy theories and militia groups. Kelly has a story on The Daily Beast today about how plea deals in the aftermath of the Capitol riots are tearing apart the Oath Keepers. Kelly, welcome to Fever Dreams. Thanks for having me. Kelly, now what's going on with this story? Obviously, the Oath Keepers are a group that vows to, quote, keep their oaths to the Constitution. But, you know, they seem to have violated one big oath, which is don't break into the Capitol. Now, what is going on there? So the Oath Keepers are one of a couple groups. The only other is the uh, Proud Boys that are charged with some of the really, really heavy stuff. The uh, conspiracy cases stemming out of the Capitol riots. So when you're facing a conspiracy case like that, it really is important that you act as a unit, you know, nobody rolling on each other. But in the past few weeks, we've had not one, but I think three Oath Keepers take plea and cooperation deals, which is not so great for everybody else facing charges right now. Yeah, it sort of seems key if you're engaged in a conspiracy, right? It kind of falls apart pretty quickly because like a lot of the other rioters are kind of just people who seem to have just rushed. They were like, oh, you know, time to go fight some cops, whatever. They don't have much maybe to rat on. But these Oath Keepers definitely do. And so what do you think this means for Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes? So Stuart Rhodes has not been charged with anything yet. He very publicly let himself, you know, be photographed outside the Capitol the whole time. Never inside, never really quite in the line of legal fire. But if you look at these court filings, damn does it look like investigators are sort of circling him and Oath Keepers leadership, trying to say it's more than just the people who broke in and who had the paramilitary gear going into the Capitol. I shouldn't laugh because, you know, it's, it was a nightmare, but well, these are the people who were like in like the stack, famously. Yeah, yeah, yeah these were the guys out. who had the, the camo and the helmets, your army surplus sale. But these criminal cases really look like prosecutors are trying to tie that really well-known attack into what the leadership may have planned in the days before the attack. Fever Dreams listeners will remember Stuart Rhodes as the gentleman who was using, allegedly, Oath Keepers money to buy kettlebells at a lingerie store and a bunch of steaks for himself, not unlike the Hamburglar. And, you know, this created a, a lot of a lot of trouble within the Oath Keepers. In terms of the text messages that have come out, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of material that the feds have been releasing in these court filings about the Oath Keepers plan. I mean, my understanding is they had sort of a, quote, quick response force that was chilling in a in like a motel across the river in Virginia. What, what are we learning about what their plans were for January 6th? Yeah. So if you ask the Oath Keepers to say, oh, quick response force, I don't know anything about that. That was a meme. That was a joke in Minecraft. If you look at the very compelling photographs that are starting to come out in these court cases, it really looks like the Oath Keepers kept people in hotels with literal cases of rifles. There's a video of someone rolling something down a Motel 6 or whatever hallway that looks a hell of a lot like a rifle case. And the logic there is that D.C. has super strict gun laws. You bring a gun to D.C., you're kind of asking for trouble, but hop across the river in Virginia and wait for the call from the leader and you can sit out there with a gun stash pretty easily. So to dig in a little bit more in this Rhodes guy, because I'm not sure how much our listeners know about him specifically, you also note in the story that Rhodes's wife is also currently crowdfunding money to divorce him. Can you tell us a little bit more about him and why is his wife crowdfunding? Look, I got to get away from this creep, but I don't have the cash yet. <laughs> Why is she crowdfunding money publicly to divorce the guy? That's an awkward one in the in the old household. So this actually, this predates the Oath Keeper's most recent brush with fame. His wife filed for divorce in 2018, alleging, you know, some, uh, wouldn't you know it, some nasty behavior on his part toward her children, I think toward a neighbor. And she filed a petition for a restraining order that got denied. So like a lot of divorce cases that are disputed. It's been held up in court for ages. She doesn't have the money to keep fighting this. She says that people don't really want to take on her case because it means taking on all the baggage with it. So she's been crowdfunding to just get the hell away from this guy. And they are strange. It's not like they have to discuss this at the dinner table. If you ever want to uh, make a case in divorce court, there you go. Well, uh, the guy sounds like a real winner. But in your reporting about how these pleaders are tearing apart the organization, one of the primary complaints here that people are doing too much snitching and the other Oath Keepers are getting mad at these supposed tough guys who just keep snitching on each other? So this is sort of laying bare some 
conflicts that have been happening in the Oath Keepers for a little while. You refer to Stuart Rhodes allegedly spending organization money in like lingerie and uh, iPhone games. That's been a percolating complaint. More recently, as Oath Keepers have stepped up their kind of pro-Trump militancy, stop the steal kind of thing. Members of the organization have walked, you know, they've they've pointed to these past financial uh uh-ohs and said, hey man, you've got to sort this out and nobody did. So now that it looks like there's uh, not much loyalty going on in courts, you're starting to see a lot of folks turn either accepting plea deals or a lot more people talking to the media about their concerns inside the group than uh, you would have heard in past years. So Kelly, I mean, where do you think this is all headed in terms of the Oath Keepers? I mean, are, are they done? I mean, is this going to be the, the nail in the coffin for this crew? Because, you know, already we're seeing the kind of classic way of getting rid of someone embarrassing or an organization that's embarrassing, which is on the right, which is just saying they're all feds and informants and kind of why and saying, ah, you know, this isn't our problem. Are the Oath Keepers, are they done for? Are they going to, my sense is that they can kind of break up into a bunch of pieces. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking of it because Oath Keepers chapters have in the past kind of gone off autonomous from the national organization. But last week I was talking to a former Oath Keeper and I said, what do you think? What, you know, are people leaving the organization over this? And he said, I would guess about 15% of dues paying members have left after January 6th. He said, everybody else is a lemming. He said, they're going to follow Stuart Rhodes off the cliff. So, you know, I think it's, it's going to depend on, um, people's sense of self-preservation. Some smarter ones might pack it up, might form splinter groups, but there are some people who are diehards and they're going to be there until the prosecution comes for them. Great. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on Fever Dreams. Thank you guys for having me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. All right. Uh, today we're joined on Fever Dreams by one of the sharpest minds out there on white supremacists and political violence in the United States, uh, University of Chicago Assistant Professor of History Kathleen Ballou. Uh, her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and here in the Daily Beast. And she's also the author of Bring the War Home, which, uh, you know, just a personal aside here, is just about the best book you can read uh, out there on the history of, you know, white white and uh, racist uh, right-wing violence in the United States, uh, particularly since the Vietnam War. Among, you'll learn a lot and, you, and you'll enjoy the read as well. Uh, she has a new book coming in the fall called The Field Guide to White Supremacy and another upcoming book for Random House called Home at the End of the World on Colorado in the 1990s and our, quote, era of apocalypse. Kathleen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great. So, you know, we're talking on the sixth month anniversary of the Capitol riot. You know, I, I think one thing I appreciate about your work is the the sort of long view you have of it, where so often it seems like these things, these these terrorist activities, this violence sort of burst out of nowhere. Uh, but you really managed to track it really through the decades. Uh, so, you know, as you were watching on January 6th, as these groups sort of burst into the Capitol, um, you know, what were you thinking in terms of, of how you, uh, your knowledge of U.S. history and, and how these movements work? That's such a great question. I mean, there's a really interesting thing of not being surprised to see something that people have talked about and planned for for quite a while, but also feeling so disheartened. And I think um, one of the reactions that a lot of people expressed on social media was a sort of sense of surviving an attack on our democracy. And I, I don't mean to over-dramatize, certainly it's not a, an event with a high casualty count like 9-11, but it was a direct 
um, incident of domestic terrorism that was meant to um, rally people to a radical cause and to a cause that is profoundly anti-democratic. Watching those events, I, I was struck, of course, as many of us were, by how long it took to get a National Guard response, how long it took to get the crowd under control. Um, and then, of course, you know, as a specialist, you're watching and, and recognizing symbols and flags and ways of um, sort of the, the ways of, of understanding the activism that are very familiar from the earlier period. So it was clear to me from the outset that at least some of these activists came from white power groups. And, and so in terms of like, you know, as someone who is very familiar with sort of the decades long uh, narrative of, of white power groups, where do you th- what do you think the larger significance of January 6th is going to be five, 10 years from now? So I think that all depends on what happens next. I am very heartened to hear that there is now a commission to investigate moving forward. I think that's critical. But, um, you know, the white power movement is a history that is full of misunderstanding, lack of attention, and sort of failures of response. But I have never seen such deliberate distortions of what happened the way that we've seen after January 6th. And, you know, this last round of comments about it being, quote unquote, just a normal tourist visit, or um, kind of trying to imply that it was all an FBI conspiracy or something, all of this is just, it's, it's amazing given that we have the footage, we have the documents, we have the social media posts. I would encourage everyone to view the New York Times investigative piece, um, that, that 40 minute piece that's on their website that sort of walks you through what happened on January. Um, but the fact that we need to do that kind of work this soon afterward is really notable. And it tells us that there are very strong um, pressures to misunderstand and dismiss what happened. The other part of it has to do with what that action was supposed to accomplish. And this is where I think the history can really help. The way that white power activism works um, there is a public-facing part of the activity, and then there is a underground, weaponized, paramilitary part of the activity. It's very hard to see both of those things unfold in real time. But the historical archive gives us the distance to really see how those two spheres of activity, first of all, work together for the same purposes, and secondly, contain the same people, the same weapons, the same motivations, the same list of goals. So what we see on January 6th is the coming together of kind of three different strands of activity. One is just the Trump base. And let me say right away that I think that there are people that were there on January 6th that were simply there to support former President Trump. And that's it. And and we're not planning anything illegal. We're just there as you know, exercising their First Amendment rights. And there we have it. And then we have QAnon believers who I think nobody understands very well yet. I think that's in many ways a very new way of thinking and organizing. In other ways, it is resonant with some of what we already know about. And then we have organized white power activity. And here we're talking about people who are decades, if not generations, into planning anti-democratic action against and who have all kinds of resources like ideological writings, deep social networks, paramilitary training camps, weapons and um, material and other military sorts of resources. And those activists are the ones that I think we should be looking at both to understand what this action was supposed to accomplish and to understand what we might anticipate will come next. And what overlap between those two groups, particularly, I'm not sure if you would put them in the Trump base category that you were talking about, but the people who are extraordinarily animated by their devotion to the personality cult of Trump and Trumpism and the white power organized paramilitary uh, elements that you were just discussing, how much overlap have you seen? Sure. So I'm a historian, so I'm not a person who's doing sort of on the ground study or sociological work on these groups in the moment. I'm, I think my value here to your listeners is more to um, think about what the earlier period can, can tell us, what tools can the history give us for making sense of what we're looking at. But what we're looking at is probably the same for me to anyone else who's reading the news, right? So um, in other words, I'm not inside these groups. Um, but I think that there are many kinds of overlap. I, I would be interested to know, for instance, about the people who are sort of swept up in the moment. I've heard some experts recall, uh, refer to this as instant radicalization when you're sort of 
brought into a mob mentality and you just go with the crowd. Um, I think there are also people who are so devoted to the former president that they have, have as you intimate, have sort of formed their own um, political activity around it. Um, and I think that the important thing to remember about the white power movement is that it is a profoundly opportunistic movement and has been for a very long time. So um, the way that it works is to use whatever the on the ground conditions are in a given situation in order to recruit and radicalize. So for instance, um, in the 19, uh, the late 1970s, uh, white power activists went into a community in, in Galveston Bay, Texas, that was really frustrated about the arrival of Vietnamese refugee fishermen and came in and made that the issue, right? So the, the clan didn't come in and create the issue. They came in and found a point of tension and then exploited and radicalized and brought the community around on their side. Um, so when there is an opening, like the Trump base, um, these groups certainly will make you. So, so Kathleen, you know, a lot of your work focuses on the 1990s as, you know, around the Oklahoma City bombing. And, and you know, I think people think of that often as a time, you know, sort of outside of politics. Uh, but obviously, it's one that I think um, your work shows has a lot of, of echoes today. I mean, how do you think that plays out, um, you know, in our current politics? So this is a really, the Oklahoma City bombing was the largest mass casualty event on American soil between Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And we are mostly walking around with no idea that that was the work of a social movement. Most people think of that as, you know, one or a few bad apples, um, maybe some people who were lone wolves, disaffected or angry at the government, and then they are finished with thinking about it. And that's that. But I think, you know, first of all, there is extensive evidence of McVeigh's involvement in the white power movement, ties to other activists and groups, ideological um sort of entrenchment in, in what he was doing. Um, and that is a full chapter in my book. I invite you to go and read that. And I'm happy to answer questions from people if they have them. Um, the other thing that's important about it is Oklahoma City, we need it for the through line to understand how we get from the paramilitary white power movement in the 1980s to January 6th, because that is a direct line. We're not talking about, um, you know, spurts of activity and then it goes away. We're talking about people and groups that have had unbroken activity, um, unconfronted, unprosecuted activity with the explicit goal of race war and war on the government since 1980. So then the question becomes, how have we not faced this? How have we not taken action? How does a movement like this continue to function within um, our political culture and, and provide this you know, violent underbelly of a nation that across many of those years was understood as being nonviolent and many people thought was sort of beyond the issue of racism. That history is important for a lot of different reasons, but I think one of the reasons that we need to learn about the Oklahoma City bombing is that it shows us what the next steps will be if these activists are not adequately prosecuted and surveilled and, and confronted after January 6th. Both January 6th and the Oklahoma City bombing, like much of the earlier movement, are working from a dystopian novel from the late 1970s called The Turner Diaries, which just a quick note, um, please don't go buy this book. The money can still go back to white power groups if you do. The Turner Diaries lays out a game plan for how a fringe movement could overthrow the United States government through guerrilla warfare and terrorism and, and a bunch of other strategies like this. And it's the, the book that's very important to Timothy McVeigh before the Oklahoma City bombing. And it's come back up um, around January 6th. We have footage of Proud Boys instructing journalists to go read the Turner Diaries. We had people erecting a noose and gallows outside of the Capitol building. That's a reference to the Turner Diaries, which has this thing called the Day of the Rope. And notably, in the Turner Diaries, there is an attack on the U.S. Capitol. And I can't sort of over uh, uh, emphasize to you how violent this book is. This is a book that features not only mass casualties like the Oklahoma City bombing, but things like um, spoilers coming, look out, things like a, <laughs> a nuclear warhead attack on the Pentagon, things like, you know, suicide bombings, mass campaigns of genocide. They use atomic weapons to clear the South of African Americans. They use biological weapons to clear all of Africa and Asia. It's a profoundly violent book. But the attack on the Capitol is actually not a mass casualty event in the Turner Diaries. The attack on the Capitol is a mortar attack, meaning there are people outside shooting mortar rounds into the Capitol and killing just a few legislators. That's the goal. And the idea 
is that it's supposed to be a show of force that the rest of the movement will be able to use to rally other white people to join the cause. And this is what's really concerning because people look at January 6th and say, oh, you know, such a low body count. Why do we need to be worried about this? And the reason is it wasn't supposed to have a high body count, A. B, I think that they very narrowly avoided um, more casualties that day. And C, that means that we have a roadmap of what comes next. And the Turner Diaries, what comes next is mass casualty attacks on civilians. And it is white power groups reaching into the Trump base in order to recruit and radicalize, which we saw them doing immediately after January 6th. Um, yeah, certainly. I think your, your work has demonstrated the you know the focus that, that was on um, spectacle that these groups had had for so long, including previous talks about attacking uh, Oklahoma City, uh, or excuse me, attacking the, the federal building in Oklahoma City. Uh, in terms of uh, the, the way the right wing media, obviously, things have changed a lot in the, the past 30 years uh, since the Oklahoma City bombing uh, in terms of the right-wing media. I mean, what role do you think uh, conservative media is playing in terms of this kind of historical process of forgetting about January 6th? Um, it's almost hard to know where to begin. We we live in this total polarization of uh, our, our media now where I think people can't even agree on what is a fact, much less what happened in a given situation. Um, and it's really notable how polarized all of that has become. I think there's a great historian of conservative talk radio, Nicole Hemmer, um, who you might want to talk to about that specific question. But I mean, I, I agree that that's a huge part of what's going on here. Right. And a difference between uh, today and the 1990s is I don't think the Republican presidential standard bearer of any point of the 1990s or early 2000s was going out there continuing to raise the flag and uh, try to further the cause that several of these groups are trying to promote. Uh, there is an entire conservative political and media ecosystem around saying different versions of um, their January 6th narrative. Uh, it, it wasn't former President Trump's fault. It wasn't any Republican's fault. Or even going as far as to saying the passions, the actions and rhetoric that ended up fueling that deadly ride were entirely justified because they were living in this fiction that uh, the election was stolen from Donald Trump and is now all but become conservative and Republican Party lore. Is there any parallel between that current scenario that's still playing out before our eyes and what happened in the conservative political landscape or even in the fringes of conservative talk radio in the 1990s surrounding Waco, Ruby Ridge, and then the Oklahoma City bombing that you can recall. I mean, I think there is a parallel. I So I want to, before I, before I answer and, and give you my best parallel, I do want to just say that I think that we are, in terms of historical context, so thoroughly off the map um, thinking about, you know, the impact of coronavirus and quarantine and, and lockdown and climate change. And, you know, there's so many pressures um, on all of our social formations right now that I think that um, we should take all parallels with a grain of salt. Um, and of course, the, one of the biggest pressure is the way that those media systems have become so instrumentalized. And of course, then there's also the internet, right? But I think that there is a through line. Um, and, and the place that I would look is the, the 1992 presidential race when David Duke was a candidate. So David Duke, for people who are not familiar, was a, a former Klansman who made a presidential run um, after being elected to Louisiana, I think, state Senate. And at no point did he get a, you know, what we would think of as like a staggering number of votes. But issues from the Duke campaign did make it into the Buchanan platform, right? And he was the other primary challenger. Um, and then the Buchanan platform planks, some of that did make it into the George H.W. Bush platform. So there is a creep between fringe political position and mainstream political position that goes back before, you know, the advent of Fox News. But I also think that the, 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 it, it, it's hard to overstate sort of how cataclysmic the combined impact of like 24-hour news coverage and the internet have been on the way we think about information. So I think um, that's the slide that she's trying to document. So I think it might help to first think about why or, or how did people try to get at Oklahoma City, Ruby Ridge, and Waco. And what we see is a lot of really good intentions and a total 
misunderstanding of the movement that they faced slash decision not to prosecute the movement as a movement. And there are historical reasons for all of that. But no, there's nothing like this in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing where people are are saying like, that didn't happen. This was actually fine. Like this is, this is not the world. Well, I mean, this is an interesting question. I mean, like, okay. Like, like there is, I don't think that the move to prosecute McVeigh and a few other people rather than looking as a movement was because of partisan action in the nineties. I think that that resulted from a series of historical events and an FBI policy change. In other words, I think that our failure to adequately contend with the bombing of Oklahoma City um, is not the same as sort of the deliberate attempts to direct our attention away from or distort or misrepresent what happened on January 6th. The only time I have seen that kind of activity has been very recent. So the one that comes to mind is after the El Paso shooting, which was carried out by a white power gunman. There was a GOP talking points memo that said, it urged people to direct the conversation away from white nationalism and white power and towards mental health issues um, in order to sort of basically look over there instead of looking at this. So we see that even before January 6th, there was some amount of interest in the GOP at some official level in directing our attention away from the problem of white power organizing. Um, But this deliberate distortion component, I think, is new. Um, You were talking about a bunch of different historical parallels, including after Oklahoma City and then after the January 6th riot, in the way that a good amount of the right, and not just the fringe right, but the mainstream uh, right in America is right now turning or has already turned Ashley Babbitt into a martyr. Does that remind you of any particular moment of that sort of like right wing or far right martyrdom in the 1990s? Immediately on January 6th, when the word came out that a woman had been killed while trying to enter a building, immediately that sent waves through, you know, waves of recognition, both through white power activist communities and through people who study this, because the 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 similarities to the Vicki Weaver story are huge and very, very obvious. So Vicki Weaver uh, was killed at Ruby Ridge during the standoff with federal agents there um, in 1992. And she was shot by a, a sharpshooter for the, the federal government while holding her 10-month-old daughter in her arms. And afterward, we see just an electric charge go through white power and militia recruitment. Um, and people are saying things like, you know, there are 10,000 Randy Weavers spread out from one coast to the other. People are saying, like, when the feds blew the head off of Vicki Weaver, they started a war. Um, and people are like up in arms swearing to defend her. Immediately after January 6th, there were, you know, icons going around with like a, a visual representation of Ashley Babbitt with like a crown of stars, like Lady Liberty, um, and, and all kinds of sort of thinking about, you know, an innocent white woman's death means a lot to this ideology. Um, and it means a lot to our kind of mainstream culture as well. Um, we see, you know, embattled white women held up as symbols for all kinds of different political causes. But interestingly, Ashley Babbitt is also, um, it, her story is really interesting. I haven't seen any information that places her um, in any kind of white power group or ideology. Um, it seems to be much more QAnon. And the things that I've seen are very notable for how quickly and how deeply she was radicalized. And I think it's also notable that there's footage of her. She filmed a video of of them marching to the Capitol that day where she refers to the action as uh, boots on the ground. Boots on the ground being, of course, how you count a military deployment in combat. Boots on the ground is how many soldiers you have. Um, I think that tells us quite a lot about her kind of symbolic role in this. Um, so it's both as a woman who is, you know, killed as a martyr at the hands of the government to these movements, and also as a soldier, as a veteran, and as someone who is continuing um, soldierly work, but in a paramilitary space. And by that, I just mean outside of the official role of the U.S. military. I think both of those are highly resonant stories, and it doesn't surprise me at all that those are being picked up as sort of 
talking points and 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 um, places of of connectivity for these activists. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Very uh, sobering stuff, but certainly very interesting and uh, relevant to our time as well. Um, would you like my? Uh, I try to not leave people down in the ditch. Would you like my not down in the ditch piece? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I think that there's a lot of reason to be hopeful. And mostly because this is the first time in the life of the white power movement that the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, um, the DOD, and many other institutions have recognized this problem and begun to allocate appropriate resources. We've never tried that before, and there's a good chance it'll help. Um, I think that it really helps a lot for people to be paying attention to this story. And I know that it's difficult because every time we open Twitter, it's like a fire hose of information. But um, for listeners, if you can just keep paying attention, I think that it is a huge part of the work ahead. So I thank you very much for spending some time with us. Thanks. Uh, Great. And Kathleen can be found online at Kathleen underscore Ballew. That's B-E-L-E-W on Twitter. And her most recent book is Bring the War Home. And she has an upcoming book called The Field Guide to White Supremacy. Kathleen, thank you again. Thank you very much. And now we bring our listeners to one of our most beloved segments on the show, one we'd like to call Fresh Hell. Will, do your Fresh Hell thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's like an imp poking you with a pitchfork. Okay, maybe we'll cut that out. Jesse, just add like <laughs> lightning bolts or, or something. Will, you have been tracking for weeks now the audit fever or quote unquote audit, whatever the hell we want to call these alleged recounts that have been sweeping across different parts of still very Trumpy America. And obviously people have seen on the news that that ridiculous versions of this have occurred in places like Arizona and swing states where Trumpists are still trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election, which just will not be overturned. It's just not going to happen. But this stuff is actually happening in areas and states that Trump won in 2020, which kind of gets to the further masturbatory element of it. Uh, Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that? That's right. Look, so I was in Arizona for the wrap up of the Arizona audit. But and you know, I saw him packing up the boxes, goodbye to the ballots, whatever. But audit mania is far from over. And so the first thing and sort of the more predictable thing that's going on is now we're seeing top Republican legislators in battleground states like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin getting pressured by these kind of right wing characters who are now saying like, oh, you know, it's too bad. We can't do it in Wisconsin because, you know, this guy won't let us. So they're really putting the heat on there. But for me, I think what's interesting really is that now this audit mania that's growing in red states that really solidly win for Trump. And, you know, I I wrote about this a couple weeks ago when this was kicking off in places like North Carolina or Oklahoma. But now this is really getting some action behind it. For example, we have Wendy Rogers, who's a state senator in Arizona, is saying the red states need to do their audits too. And I think what's intriguing here is this idea that, especially in, in a state where it's really, really red, you kind of can do whatever you want with the audits, really. I mean, the Arizona audit, they ended up sort of being able to do whatever they wanted. But really, you would not have much opposition in any way from Democrats because they just have no power. And so you could end up with a situation where people can bring in someone like inventor Jovan Pulitzer to do his sort of hunt for folds in the ballots. And you could have all the bamboo hunting you want really unrestricted. And so, yeah, I mean, I I think this is a a movement that I think we should expect to see a lot more of. So in these red state audits, what is the point to try to prove that Trump won those states by allegedly millions of votes more than he already won it? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I've started to see some evidence of it. It's a little different, but I've started to see some evidence of this. People are analyzing now the ballots in Illinois, and they're saying, obviously a solidly blue state, but they're saying Biden should have only won this by five points or something. And so sort of you do this in the the red states, I mean, and say, you know, this should have been way more of a blowout. This shouldn't have been a high single digits win. The challenge here for Republicans, right, is that you don't want to, I think the reason a lot of state officials have been reluctant to do this is that you don't really want to cast questions about the integrity of the election that, for example, got you elected, right? Or that you oversaw. Right. It's a rerun of what happened in Georgia during the Senate runoff. Right, exactly. So so like the state officials who are actually in charge of the elections, they may say, buzz off. But then you have a lot of state lawmakers, perhaps, or activists who are going to say who really don't have much skin in the game in the same way. And so now we're, we're sort of seeing this play out in Texas, where the governor's race is shaping up. And Alan West, you know, the former just recently resigned as the Texas chair of the Texas Republican Party, palled around with some QAnon people recently. And he's running. 
And the Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick, is potentially shaping up to run. And now none other than Sidney Powell, MAGA lawyer, has come out and backed him, backed Alan West, because basically she's saying Dan Patrick hasn't done enough to do an audit. For listeners who have followed Alan West's career arc over the past, I don't know, decade or so, this makes absolute sense. There is nothing else that Alan West would be doing right now, especially if you traced his rise to Tea Party right-wing stardom during the Obama era to now. There's literally nothing else Alan West would be doing. Right. I mean, and Alan West's whole deal, right, is his whole career is premised on really giving in to the id of the Republican Party at whatever moment that is. And so you have him pitted against Dan Patrick, is himself, like, not exactly a moderate. Basically, Sidney Powell is mad because she's like, I gave Dan Patrick all my proof of election malfeasance, and he didn't do anything with it. Left unsaid. Maybe Dan Patrick thinks she's a crackpot. And was like, oh, yeah, Sidney just feeding it straight into the shredder. Thanks a bunch, buddy. So she's mad about that, and she's like, only Alan West will sort of secure the integrity of Texas elections. So there's a lot of this that feels and sounds irreparably stupid, and it is. But I don't know why I didn't see any of this coming, especially happening in red states and red counties, which I absolutely should have, because Trump did this for a long time following the 2016 election, which he won. He kept going on Fox News and telling anyone who would listen that there was massive fraud in the 2016 elections. And actually, I may have even won the popular vote and I won the election by millions more than I already won. He already won that fucking election. He was already in the White House in the Oval Office when he was doing that. So now, obviously, this was going to happen. Obviously, there was actually going to be an amount of right-wing political power around this country coalescing around the idea that actually he should have won these red states by, I don't know, hundreds of thousands or millions more votes than he actually did. It makes perfect sense. I don't know why I even bothered to raise an eyebrow at any of this. Right. I mean, the idea now is obviously everyone kind of wants a piece of the voter fraud action. And I feel like there's a lot of, in sort of a more like sort of picayune way, I think there's a lot of these kind of like amateur voter fraud hunters in these states who are like, oh, man, why don't I live in a battleground state? (laughs) I've got some crackpot theories, too. I mean, these people, their ideas are just literally crazy. You know, I I was just seeing that deep break video. Just like none of the theories are the same and everyone's got their own pet theory. So so I I, I think this really will let a a thousand kooks at least get a hundred thousand Twitter followers. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.